Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. Uh, today is the sound day. So uh, if you have questions about sound, we've got some great experts here in the panel. So uh, definitely, if you've got questions about audio, um, all kinds of audio, uh, go ahead and throw those in. In our second hour, we're going to have Matthew Fletcher, a Fetcher here. Uh, and he is going to be talking about uh, King of FM. Uh, this is a new new uh, iPad app. I have downloaded it and played with it, and it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> so, so anyway, he's going to talk about what it is and how it works. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes to us from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, and uh, he says, I ordered an M2 Mac Mini. What is the recommended PCI expansion chassis I need, and does Blackmagic have a decklink card with HDMI for Zoom ISO? There are a lot of options here. Um, you know, I think that uh, what we most of us are using are the Sonnet boxes. So Sonnet, it's the SE1, not the SEL. They are both look identical or almost identical online. <laughs> and they, uh, but the SE1 will take a full-sized card, while an SEL will take a half-sized card. It won't fit the decklink cards in it. So, so you want the SE, uh, you want the SE1. Uh, they're about three hundred fifty dollars. Um, that's the one that most of us are using right now for this. There, um, uh, OWC also makes a One U that has a hard drive, hard drives and servers in them, as well as um, that that the um, the card. And Sonnet makes one that also goes into a One U rack. So you have the Mac Mini on one side and the card on another, and that's fair bit more expensive, um, but it, it also is another good one. As far as HDMI cards, there are there are Blackmagic cards that are HDMI. They don't have the same density, so it's not a whole bunch of HDMIs. I think it's one or two, um, but they those are available. At that point, you kind of can just use what you have with the with the Mac Mini. So you don't necessarily, if you're only taking one or two out, I don't. I wouldn't get a card for that. Generally, I would. Most of us that are doing this are using SDI, so that's what I'd probably focus. Uh, next question. Khalid Al-Jamaya in Hassa, Saudi Arabia says, have you heard of Trace Journey? The tool converts any mid-journey image into a vector. I know Alex would love it, especially after the Apple update for Keynote in which it imports SVGs. He's got a link there. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, I've been playing with it uh, a little bit and it's it's pretty cool. Like for instance, if you do some straight up vectors, I got this one of, I just did a computer. So basically what happens is you create a mid-journey and in their bot, and then you say, hey, I want you to vectorize it. So that's uh, that's basically the computer. I then did a one where I took an image, and then I described it in mid-journey, created, uh, which is basically an image, uh, this image right here of me. It created this image over here. And then, of course, the end result was this inside of Illustrator. So a little posturized, but uh, didn't do a, too bad of a job when it came to something a little bit more realistic and uh, I could definitely see using this for a lot of vector images. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I did a presentation where I had a person, I wanted to have the same person with different expressions. It's really tough to do. Photoshop uh, did an okay job with uh, creating that, but I could see myself actually using this to really create a nice vector so I can move the person around if I needed to. Yeah, I, I found it to be... I started playing with it <laughs> and um and so I, uh, I i definitely found it to be pretty 
pretty slick. So um, basically, what it you know it it doesn't take very much to do it. Uh, you do need to get into their um, you get into the bot, so you get into their uh, community, and then you can get that 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 bot. And I started taking some of the stuff that I had actually used for um, you know some of the, the the other things that I've done here. So let me see if I can play this out for you here. Uh, let's see. Oh, my computer is not. Uh, my second screen is not working. Uh, anyway, so uh, I'll have to show it to you later. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so the um, but I but I definitely it, as Jeffrey said, when it starts to outline it, things that have soft gradients are going to actually um, start to become more posterized because it's kind of quantifying those or quantitizing those into the into those areas. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. So a uh, couple of things, Alex. Uh, and Jeffrey, are you saying that it, you have to generate the mid-journey file inside their tool and then vectorize it? Nope. Or can you, can you bring any rasterized image into their tool and vectorize it? You can bring any rasterized tool in and vectorize it. So and you does, can take... Does it, Illustrator it, do that? I don't think so. Not at this level. John <laughs> says know, thumbs up. It, it, you know, it, 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 I don't think Illustrator does what this does. Um, you know, so it, and you can also say things like remove background. So if the background is fairly clean on line art that you're bringing in, it just goes, and it just pulls out the background. And then you say, rasterize that and rasterize it. Now, I will say that it's doing the best it can with AI from a person who used to trace these all day. <laughs> so to, to this, it's not clean. Like not, it's not clean like what we would do if someone did it by hand. Um, but it does a pretty good job. Uh, let me see if I can um, now show you this. So, Alex, that little pop noise you just did, can we get a one more? There you go. I need a sample of that. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty wanna, good at I'm that. I'm going to map it to every key on my keyboard. Mm, there we go. It's like, uh, it's like a popcorn. Um, anyway, the, uh, uh, this, is, this, is, this is the image that I rendered. This was something we were showing the other day. So this is the image that I rendered. And, um, and the, let's see here, the, there's the posterized version. So you can see that now this is, you, I lost the shadow in when I did this um, as well as, so you can see some of the stuff that, that is there. So if you if you look at this, this shadow is um, uh, the shadow is gone as well as the uh, um, uh, and, and you can see some posterization in her in her face yeah, the around the gradient on her on her cheek. But it just, just looks it just looks more cartoon. You know, like it looks like it just has a different style to it. I wouldn't say that it is um, better or worse. Uh, it is completely outlined, and um, it was uh, you know it it now really is infinite resolution. So pretty pretty impressive um but i've definitely brought in all kinds of images and it will do do the work on them so it's it is super a super cool uh ai tool next question next one comes to us from alexander knight in vancouver bc i recently acquired the panasonic xlr digital interface for my g7 camera that utilizes the hot shoe small rig discontinued the cage for this camera and i can't find any full cages that will fit any suggestions go ahead carl uh, I would probably suggest more of a generic cage because once you put that adapter on the hot shoe, it's quite large. So it may actually interfere with cages that are very form fitting. So like a wooden camera cage, which is more of a, a more of a box, but it give you a lot of quarter twenties all the way around. Um, remember you've only got one attachment point on that camera. So everything is swiveling from the quarter 20 on the bottom of the camera. And now you've used up the hot shoe. So sometimes, sometimes you'll use um, the hot shoe as a second contact point for your cage, but you're using that up with your, um, XLR adapter. So just be aware also you only have the one quarter 20, so your cage can spin. 
So that's another thing as well you want to kind of remember because you don't have a second a second attachment point to stop it from spinning. Next question. David Brady in New York City is up next. Does anyone know of motion tracking apps that can leverage the Insta360 and or OBSBOT family of gimbal webcams? I think these could make for nifty home security or sentry applications. John? If there's an SDK, I'm sure it can be done. Axis has had 360-degree motion tracking for two decades now, so the, those uh, technologies have been out there. So if you had access to the SDK for the, one of those cameras, and I just got the the same one that Jeffrey has, the RS, um, so we'll see. Yeah, I think that you might be able to do it in motion. Apple's motion uh, may have may have that tracking available to it. It has tracking in it. I don't think it's limited to uh, a rectilinear frame, so it may it may actually do that. Uh, also, Nuke Nuke will have that <laughs> built in. It's a little bit pricey for just doing some basic motion tracking, but uh, but you can look at at maybe downloading a demo and see if it'll work. But it sh Nuke should definitely work. Uh, next question. Alexander Knight in British Columbia is right back with with Zoom ISO set up on a Mac Mini. How do you return program feed to the guest? Can it use any UVC source on that computer? Yeah, that's what we've done in the past is we'll just send back that computer just has an input and that can be a UVC source that could be one of your SDIs. So for instance, if you're using a quad card or a duo card, you could have some of those outputs go out and some of them come in. And so you can, so those are reversible. So you can have one of those inputs be the input for Zoom ISO. So, um, so you can use either the SDI card to do that, or again, you can just have another, um, you know, any kind of input, you know, USB to HDMI. Um, input device, whether that's a blue condor or an ATEM or whatever you want to use to return back into it. It's just going to be seen by the client as another video input. And then you send that to um, to everyone watching or back into the meeting because you're just joining the meeting there um, and providing your video. Uh, but you don't have, you can't necessarily send it to each, <laughs> to each, each person differently, uh, but you can send it to all of them as a return. Uh, next question. Jonas Donnell in Stuttgart, Germany says, what is an affordable, and in this case he means less than 600 euro, solution to record stereo Atmos for violin concerts? Go ahead, Carl. So I'm guessing by stereo Atmos you mean like more like ambisonic. Um, so you could use like a, a mix pre 6. Um, that'll be a little bit over uh, 600. Um, the Tascam, which is probably one of the better ones, I think, is the Tascam. Um, I believe it's around $400 on special at the moment because the X6 is out. And the X6 will only have two inputs. This one has the eight inputs. It actually has the ambisonic mode, so it does the decoding inside, um, which I believe some of the sound devices stuff does as well. Um, this one is, it's got a lot more features than you'll find on pretty much the sound devices for that kind of recording, but it's not a production-ready kind of thing. It's not, not essentially an AV recording. Um, you get YouTubes we use this all the time. Um, the other thing I would suggest is uh, you can just use the interface and the Mac, you know, a, a MacBook. Um, so just have four channel interface and a MacBook. That way you can actually do the decoding in the software you may want to choose rather than doing it on hardware. So it's a little bit more flexible, especially if you've got a violin, you know, you, you're going to be settled. You're not going to be running around trying to chase them. So maybe a, a MacBook with an M1 or M2 and a four channel interface. Um, you just want to clean because you're going to be using condenser mics, so you don't need a crazy interface. You don't need a lot of gain. Condensers only need like 30 dB of gain. So you can use um, the Behringer HD ones. I wouldn't get anything else outside of the HD ones. So the HD ones start around 150 and go up from there for the four channel. Um, you can go up to the Roland as well. Uh, I would avoid um, the Scarlets. They're, got a, they're just a little bit noisy as far as 
their preamps where the HD Behringer ones, uh, only the HD Behringer ones um, are quiet. Um, the cheaper Behringer ones avoid, but I don't think they do the cheaper Behringer ones with four channel anyway. Next question. Next question comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. We're considering wireless room mic systems like the Shure Microflex with gooseneck mics. Are there other similar systems out there to consider? There are a lot of office mics, <laughs> a lot of different ones. Uh, almost everybody, you know, everybody builds something like this or all the major ones, uh, you know, whether it's Yamaha or um, or Sennheiser, um, many other companies are building these types of systems for conference rooms and um, to look at. I will say that I used to own two Microflex systems and for an office environment, I think they work really, really, really well. Um, the main, here are some of the main advantages to the Microflexes. Number one is that they're flexible. That's why they're called a Microflex. Um, and so we were able to use gooseneck mics. We can use lav, um, lav mics, uh, handheld mics, and any combination of those. Um, and we can change that all the time. So while you're normally sitting there trying to figure out all your frequencies and everything else, you simply plug these into the, there's a, there's a charger, you plug them into the charger and you push a button and it just resets all their numbers one to eight um, in that charger. So it just re it resets the mics. Um, so when you're from a corporate environment of ease of use, it's super easy. And then it has an access point um, that are wireless to that access point, and then they they are they come to your network in Dante. So so you know you're just resetting. You have your set your, your mics one through eight or eight through or nine through sixteen. You have those um, you have those set up. You simply reset them so you can change what you're doing on any given day without a lot of wiring or setup or anything else. Um, they have uh, two talkback channels. Um, so those, so the, the labs actually have both a headset and an, a headphone return. It's like a three, 3.5 millimeter uh, headphone return back to the labs, um, which is super useful. So you, but you have two channels of returns that can be sent to those. Um, and again, all of this is over Dante. So there's not a lot of wiring. There's not a lot of um, process to it. I have not seen anything else um, as flexible in a corporate environment, I would say that I can hear when it's quiet and I listen to it, I can hear the bits. <laughs> this is a decked format. Um, and so I can hear the bits very, very subtly. I think that most people would never notice. Um, so I wouldn't, in a, again, in a corporate environment for corporate broadcast, not for broadcast broadcast, I think that there are some audio engineers that would hear the bits as well. Um, most people don't ever notice it at, at all and it's only in the very ends of things that are quiet um, and it's only when the compression is turned up for high um, for higher uh, um, availability so that you have more channels to work with so there's um, so it's it's overall it's a really really great and robust system um, it, and it, it's it's really easy to set up um, and so I, I think that I would I would highly recommend it um, but know that that you want to listen to it um, and just make sure it doesn't that little last little bit of bits doesn't bother you. Um, it is it is a nat the nature of that of that system, um, and uh, but it's really really powerful. Uh, quick reminder that uh, we uh, this is uh, the first hour. You can ask questions during the first hour. So uh, anytime during the first hour, general questions. As you can see, we've got some great audio experts here. So if you've got audio questions, throw them in. But if you've got general questions, we've got some generalists here as well. So we can answer most of the questions that you might ask. Um, and so ask those questions and also look at the second hour when we're talking about uh, King of FM. So stay tuned for that. All right, let's uh, go to the next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Comment on Apple versus Apple's trademark battle, uh, non-paywall link, and he's got the link to the Apple story on Slashdot. 
Go ahead, Bill. Well, so this is a copyright claim, and it's actually happening not in the U.S., but in Swiss court. I think this is kind of a little clickbaity kind of, but it, it, a lot of people who are interested in copyright issues are paying attention to this. Basically, there is a Swiss fruit growing cooperative that has an apple with a cross on it as their trademark. And so Apple has gone into court with them to try to uh, extract, I guess. I, I'm not that familiar with the suit, but just to say, can you copyright something as generic as the form of an apple. Uh, this is, I think, a niche case right now, and it's not like in U.S. they're trying to, to trademark all apples, but it's an interesting skirmish in the battle for how copyright's going to evolve going forward. Go, Jeffrey. I think this is a very dangerous precedence. The company in question is 111 years old and precedes Apple easily. Uh, the fact that it's any type of Apple could then turn into something that could come to the United States. They tried to uh, they tried to sue a company because they had a pear at one time. So any type of fruit, I get it. If it's an apple with a bite taken out of it, looks exactly like the Apple logo. That's one thing. But when you're talking generic fruit uh, and uh, get any type of precedence that they can set uh, with any other company, especially like I said, a company that precedes them is not going to uh, really work well in our favor. If we, if we put an apple in anything, they could start coming after us. So I don't like it at all. We'll see. We'll see how that turns out. <laughs> Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, Opera recently released the Opera One browser that incorporates OpenAI GPT technology in the browser. Considering the market dominance of Safari and or Chrome, especially in their respective mobile ecosystems, do alternative browsers have a chance? You know, I think that um, alternative browsers could, you know, there's a lot of people that use a lot of different browsers, <laughs> you know, and so whether it's Brave or Opera, uh, there are many, many browsers out there. Of course, there's the, the vast majority. The vast majority are using either Chrome, Safari, or Edge. Uh, those are the big three, um, and that's probably ninety percent of the market. Um, but it, but there are a lot of other ones that are kind of floating floating about, um, and uh, and I think that the the um, uh, I think that there's always that option for people to do it. And I think it's great that it's opened, that, that people can build those those out. So um, so it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I think we're going to see this G GPT technology kind of added to many things. Uh, it's not very hard to add. Um, so as the API goes, it's pretty easy to add into, into many, many different features. And you're going to see people experimenting with where does this fit and how does this work? Uh, and, um, and as someone who uses it, you know, ChatGPT itself every day, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that I think is going to continue to, you're, you're going to see it inserted into a lot of different things. Go ahead, Bill. Are you telling me I actually have to move on from Netscape Navigator? <laughs> I'm, I'm bereft. <laughs> you might, you might have to move on. Netscape huh. Nav Navigator. Yeah. I, I, I uh, yeah, <laughs> I think it might be, uh, I think, I think you might, uh, uh, have to, I, you know, it, it's, it's still there. I, it will. <laughs> maybe play some text for you uh I, I i think half of our listeners are like i don't even know what he's talking about like i don't even know what that what you know what are they what are they joking about there all right uh, next question next question comes to us from george oh i'm sorry paul wallace in austin texas what do you use for screen protection and a case for your phone and watch and is it even necessary with the tough glass being used and the waterproofing go ahead carl so i've never used a case or a screen protector since iPhone one. <laughs> so my all my iPhones have gone commando. 
Um, never had a problem touch wood. Um, but if you go out, if you're out about like and the phone falls out of your pocket, you know, or the phone falls into your car and you can't find it under your seat, those kind of things, then you get yourself a case, um, even just a bumper system that protects the screen if it just goes flat. Um, waterproofing, you don't need to worry about. It's like IP67, I believe now. So you can kind of dive into the ocean and as long as you take it out and dry it off, you'll be fine. Um, the watch, I don't think you can really do anything to the watch because it's such a, a small curves, unique screen. But for the phone, if, if you know you're going to be out and about, it's more the back. It's going to be the back glass. It's going to break, not the front one. So back glass is when you're going to replace the most, I guess. Um, but if you have, if every phone you've ever owned, you've had to replace either the front or back glass every time, like once a year, then yeah, get a case. But if, if you don't, then don't. Go ahead, John. I've had every iPhone since the 3G. And for the first time, I broke my back glass, just like Carl just said. And it's the one, it's the it's the company that has the logo as the asterisk, whatever company that is. It did not save the rear glass. This is $200 to fix the back glass at the independent repair shops. Yeah, go ahead, and uh, Bill. Yeah, I bought a version one watch, and uh, a week after I owned it, it slipped off the counter in the bathroom that I was in and hit the tile floor, and the watch face broke and it was i think the watch had cost me somewhere around a little under 300 dollars, and the repairing of the watch after a couple of weeks with no insurance was about 200 dollars. so i thought to myself i need a bumper thing and i put on this ugly bumper case back in those days then i started paying more attention and they kept saying they were improving their glass formulations and the rest of that so the last two watches i've had the upgrades since then i usually skip two or three generations uh, I haven't put anything on them. I think if you're an auto mechanic and you're wearing it every day and you're doing something like wrenching around and you might slip off and bash your wrist against something, some kind of protection is a good thing. But for most of us who are just leading normal lives and not bashing our hands around a lot, it's probably unnecessary. I've had no problems in the last four years. All right, a little tech issue here. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead, uh, George. Um, my iPhone 11, I smashed the back glass. This is my first and only ever iPhone, and I smashed the back glass mountain biking because I'm an idiot and I use my phone in the way it was never intended to be used. I, I ran over it, I think. Um, I'm still using the phone. I still shoot video with it all the time. I'm blown away. I mean, of course, I've got a heck of a bumper case on it, but I am absolutely abysmal with equipment. I've dropped it a thousand times. I've replaced the glass screen protector four times at least um, because it's protected the screen. And you can get the glass screen protectors at the 99 cent store for a buck 50. Pro tip. <laughs> so if you're, if you're like me, go there and buy three. <laughs> go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Bill, for you, I may recommend the Casio G-Shock. Very durable little watch. Very tough. Uh, you know, I, I, I find it interesting with all of these devices that if – Every time we reached for our iPhone to go do something, sitting next to it was a stack of $100 bills, equivalent to the cost of the particular model that you have. I wonder if it would make us treat these phones differently. Because I just, I, I watch, you know, our, our family, we have a lot of little kids. And those kids, the, the, that phone just becomes a babysitter. And people just, the the adults, not me, just hand their phone to these little kids. And I'm like, no, you will never get Papa's phone ever. 
And I, I, I think people need to be, like, never. Can I see that? No. Go talk to your mother. Uh, but, um, sorry, I'm just, like, if we, if we were reminded at the cost of these phones, I think, you know, George, you may not have tried to strap it to your handlebars to use it for a speedometer on your bike or whatever craziness you were doing. And yeah, video. Bill, G-Shock, tough watch. Yeah, the um, mine go into cases pretty quickly. So I'm using right now, um, I'm using the uh, Peak Design case here. And what's nice about this one is, is that it, it has a magnetic background backing. And so it snaps onto my, there's a charger in my, in my car that it snaps onto. I have this little wallet piece that when I go out, I can throw it on there and it'll snap on so that I have that stuff that, that all goes together there. Uh, there's a tripod mount that, that actually, it's not just a magnet, it locks into this little, this little square. This little, let's see if I can show it here. If I cover my eyes, it'll, this little square here. Um, and so it's, it's great. It does a pretty good job of protecting the phone. I've dropped it a lot. Um, I also put a screen protector on the front. Uh, it's peeling off a little bit, um, but it is, uh, it's been there for almost a year um, or, or since November. And so the, um, uh, I keep those, and this is how I've done it for years. I, I kind of, from what Chris talked about, I spend a lot of money on the phone, um, and um, I prefer it to be in mint condition for the entirety of its experience with me. Uh, and my wife appreciates that because when I buy a new phone, because I'm on Mac break, I buy a phone every year. Um, so I, when I upgrade the phone, it trickles down <laughs> into the family. So the, the family just gets whatever the last, my wife gets the last version. My kids have the versions before that. And so, um, and because I was testing, the kids have a couple of 12s. And so, but they have cases too, <laughs> you know, and so they, and, um, and uh, I put them in cases pretty quickly. I know that people say that they don't, they're not necessary, but I've watched my family drop cases, drop the phones all the time. And then you're not, you're not super, super stressed. I do have versions of, of ones that my son had without the case uh, cover or, and, and I can, I'll show them next time that question comes up. They're just shattered across the front. There's things hanging out the front. Um, and so it definitely made a big difference to do that. When it comes to sports photography, um, that's when I moved to disposable cameras because I spent too much money. You know, I, it's two thousand. You know, I got a two thousand dollar phone. I, I I put three hundred dollar uh, cameras uh, on those and destroyed them, but because I can still pull the memory card out. So the the key is is that with a phone, when you destroy it, it's hard to get the video out of it. When you destroy a GoPro, the last frames are still <laughs> still on that card. So so it doesn't really matter what happened to it before that before that moment. Uh, next question. George Whittem, Venice, California, here on the panel. Insta360 link to HDMI converter to ATEM Mini for budget 4Cam podcast studio ring. Rig, am I asking for trouble? Not happy with the Logitech Mevo image quality after initial tests. Go ahead, Carl. So this is actually something I was talking to Chris a little bit about before the show started. Um, so I've just started doing this myself. I'm, I'm using six cameras and three of them are Sony camcorders, but two of them are this. So this has got a modern chipset in it. It's just a basic camcorder. It's got optical zoom, optical steady shot, clean HDMI out, records to SD, records at 50 meg per second. It is region-based. So in your region, it'll be 60 frames a second. In my region, it's 50 frames a second. You can't switch that. But this is pretty much one of the best cameras you can get for the money for those kind of multi-cam shoots where you're... Because Insta360 into an HDMI converter is just now just a basic camera that's terrible at low light. So if you're going to do that, you might as well want to have one that has optical zoom, has HDMI out, has SD recording, SD card recording in it. It, it gets powered via USB, so you can use a, a power bank to 
power it the entire day. It'll just power the entire day. Um, you've got remote in, so you can actually do So it has all the modern features you get in a Sony camcorder. It just doesn't have 4K. It has um, face auto autofocus, so auto, face auto detect. So it has all those all those features. Um, but as you can see, the price is just, you, you can't beat the price, especially if you want to buy a handful of them, just put them around static because your Insta360s will be static because you're going to do a HD microversion. You want to go into an ATEM. I would suggest putting these Sonys into an ATEM. Um, it comes with the HDMI cable. So it actually comes with everything you need. The HDMI cable comes with, you can get an HDMI extender, of course, but um, it has a USB plug built in. So you can plug literally the camera directly into a power bank. You don't need any cable in between it. Um, I'm finding them very handy um, at the price and they record, if you want to do records, they record at 50 meg. So it's pretty high quality recording as well. Go ahead, Jeffrey. So in the order that you, with the link and the, uh, what's called the UVC con converter, a lot of these UVC converters have, uh, have a USB insert where you will put your USB dongle for the remote control. So basically you're buying the link, which is uh, the Absbot's what, 239, the link's uh, 299 or something like that. You'll have this little UVC converter, which is about $150, $160. You'll have to buy the remote separately in a lot of these cases, which is another $60, $70. And then that brings it in the ATEM. You have a lot of points of failure there. I would highly suggest go on Amazon. There's a lot of PTZ cameras out there now that are about $500, $600. They won't do 4K, but they'll at least have a 12x optical, 20x optical. Every time you zoom with a link or an OBSBOT, you're, you're losing your resolution, basically. If, if, you're, if you want a full true 4K, it's just not going to happen. So doing it this way, you'll be able to get the zoom ability because it's an optical zoom, and you'll have VSCA control. You won't have NDI, but you'll have VSCA. So you can actually uh, uh, attach it to a computer and do some control from there and even uh, set up some scenes if you wanted to. Go ahead, uh, yeah. George. I find that the bit rate is probably a part of the problem. It's a 20, the maximum is 20. And um, of course, I was I was expecting that it was like a 4K sensor that you're cropping in on 1080p, but it does not seem to be the case. And when you crop in at all, it, it really doesn't hold together. And that was what really disappointed me. Um, and. So, you know, I was, I was, I uh, the fantasy of a one cable camera because it's PoE and I have the PoE adapters, everything's hardwired. Eh, it's not really, it's not really all it's cracked up to be, but I was hoping for that. And those PTZ PoE cameras uh, with zoom lenses are starting to sound more appealing. Go ahead, Chris. Sorry about that, Alex. I raised my hand. I forgot what I was going to say. Pulled my hand down. Remembered what I'm... Anyway, uh, you know, the, what Carl was talking about, the, the small, inexpensive HDMI camera, it very much reminds me of the way Leo Laporte built his studio uh, when mm -hmm. he first built this. If, if you recall, he bought like, you know, like 30 cameras. And I can remember what... Canon G10s. Yeah. Like, like, wasn't it like 30 of them? Yeah, they just it was like put 20, them everywhere. I think, Twenty of them. Yeah, they're, they're, I think I want. I might want to take a shot this direction. Put one there. He used a lot of them because what what he did is that he didn't have to move anything. So having right. twenty of them meant he could just go to each set and they could just jump from each set, and there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of labor. So that right. was the big thing: is it lowered labor and increased the stability. Yeah, I thought that was really brilliant back then, and Carl's doing this, basically the same thing. Yeah, you know the. Um, I built a lot of studios <laughs> you know, for, for a variety of corporate clients. And 
I'll just keep coming back to saying that content's easy to easy and cheap to make or, or easy and cheap to watch, but rarely both. And and I think that you just the the, the biggest problem that we've had in the past is that we uh, that we kind of scrunched and saved, um, and then the without the client, you know, we did it artificially, like we thought we're going to do the client a favor by making it less expensive. Um, and then they just were unhappy with the, they never came back to have us do another studio, you know, because they, they were frustrated with the studio and it just became, it was like the, and it was all the little niggly things that they didn't like, you know, like the things didn't quite work and there was, a sh you know, a sharp depth of field and there was, you know, and everything was a little bit, you know, and we thought we were doing them a favor. And what we ended up doing was having them have something that they just stopped using, you know, and so the the thing is, is that what we then started moving toward that that was in the early days. That was in you know fifteen years ago when we really started doing these. Then we moved into creature comforts, and so we would bid something out on what it took to be really nice. And when they wanted to cut the budget, we would tell them what they were giving up, rather than us deciding what they were going to give up. We would say, "This is going to be a great studio, and people will." love watching your videos with it and it's going to be really easy for it to use and everything's just going to work and you'd be surprised at how many people just found the money to do that and oftentimes we came in 50 percent more than their budget and we would still talk them into you know going in that direction and we didn't usually we would because of that we would cut our margins really low because it wasn't about making money it was about making them happy you know and having them you know walk in and be proud of that studio every time they walked in and so it's just something to kind of keep in mind when you start building the studios is they have to use them all. And so a lot of times these little things that we save money on right now become difficult to deal with later, you know, and, and so, and, and that's the, always the challenge. And I think part of the reason that we moved that direction is because we were building studios for ourselves. And so we didn't want to give client, we would show a client, this is what we're doing with our studio. And they were like, well, I want that. And I'm like, well, that costs more than what you what you budgeted <laughs> you know, like to do. And then they go, okay, well, how do we make that happen? You know, and so um, so anyway, I think that you just want to be careful of cutting too close or being too creative. Um, I'm I tend to be not not very creative about how I do these. You know, I do, you know, and we would do things like um, we used to machine, I mean, to give you a sense of how far we took this. We would machine the interface. We had a etching company in in out of, out of the, the west east coast that we would design stuff in Illustrator and send it to them, and we would machine buttons that were sitting on an Arduino that would then talk to the switcher. And so there was a button of a person, and a button of a computer, and a button of you know two people, and a button of and they and they're big metal buttons, and you push them, and they they run the switcher for you. So that when you sat there as someone who's non-technical, you just push the button that it looks like, and you get very used to that kind of thing. And we had big dials for volume, and we had like things were very like kid proof, <laughs> you know. And so, and they had us do a bunch of them because they would sit down and this was like, this is them. Every time someone sat into the studio, they were like, who did this? And how do we have one of those? You know, and that built up our business much faster than when we were doing them in really, uh, you know, um, trying to just, you know, cut every little margin off. And so that, that's just something I would consider as you, as you start to build it. And everybody, you know, there's a, um, there is an equation that, that I often talk about is that, Action occurs when possibility is greater than circumstance. It doesn't occur at a certain number. It doesn't occur at something. If someone sees the possibility of something, and it's more than the circumstance being money or time or or location or whatever. Whenever that possibility gets above circumstance, action occurs. Like it just it will always occur. And so it's just a matter of you. You can lower that circumstance, and then they'll they'll do it. But you could also increase the possibility of what they're going to get, and then they'll just 
that circumstance becomes less and less important. You won't spend money on a $500 pencil, but you might on a $500 Mercedes. You know, you just have to decide what you're, what you're talking about. Go ahead, George. Yeah, I mean, I, I, going into this with, uh, I, I prefaced the whole thing with the client saying, you know, these are cameras that are pretty new. I have not personally used them. I right. like the usability, the user interface, the ease. But I mean, I am willing to to fall on the sword or whatever you want to call it. I'm and take the time I took sunk yesterday, and pull those cameras out and put in something yeah. better. Because I mean, if I'm looking at the picture quality and going, mm, eh, you know, I don't want that to be what the client, can, even if it, they think it's good enough. I don't. And, think and you said this is a primarily a radio show, right? It's it's a it's it's your it's your sub five million a year revenue podcast network studio, you know. Um, you know, it's a small facility, very small, and it's going to be run by a single person trying to capture, mix, you know, capture audio and video. It's one of those kind of situations. So I really do want to keep the usability high, high, high. I don't want it to be a very elaborate power up, power down sequence. And so this seemed like a fun idea, but the cameras are definitely uh, falling short. And I'm, like I said, I, I will go in there and yank those things, put them back in the box. And uh, the client already has an ATEM. And they already have four handy cams. Right. I just was like, let's make it easier. So yeah, wasn't worth it. Right. Yeah. It's it's a you know it's it's tricky. It's tricky. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a tricky, tricky business. Yeah. Tricky. And uh, we've screwed it up as often as often as we've gotten it right. Go ahead, Carl. So any money you save on cameras, invest in lighting. So yeah. that's the yeah. only thing I can suggest. Like you can actually make a like as I said, the, the Sony cameras I showed before, they need a thousand lux of light. Below that, mm -hmm. they're kind of useless. But once you get to a thousand lux of light, um, or even two thousand lux of light, which is actually pretty easy to do with LED lighting these days, um, for about a thousand dollars, you can buy an entire lighting kit that'll do. Yeah, we. I love the analogy because I'm an uh, audio guy. I love the analogy that in sound, the better your acoustics are, you can get away with actually very, very inexpensive microphones of good quality. And um, it feels like to me it's a little bit of a similar analogy. Really good lighting. The cameras don't have to be quite as sensitive, quite as high end to get good image. Yeah, hundred percent, Jeffrey. Yeah, and you said you had Sony, three Sony Handycams already in there. So what I would start looking at maybe is something like a Solo Shot, which is a device you put underneath that Handycam to give it that. You won't get the zoom. But you'll definitely get the uh, movability of a PTZ camera if that's what you're really looking for. Thank you. Good luck. Let us know how it goes. Thanks, everybody. Um, yeah. Next question. Uh, our own Chris Fenwick of Emeryville, California here in the panel has a statement. I have a deeper question about the vectorizing of images we discussed earlier and attempting to do it in Illustrator. I go ahead, Chris. Yeah, so Alex, we were talking about that uh, ChatGPT Elemento thing uh, about vectorizing something, uh, uh, a, an already rasterized image. And I, I wanted to understand what I don't understand. And I don't understand enough to tell you, to even ask the good question. But, so here's a painting in Photoshop. My mother painted this uh, about 50 years ago. I, it's one mm -hmm. of my favorites. Uh, here it is in Illustrator. And if I twirl this down, I could see I have vectorized it. And this is uh, pretty much every little stroke. And I can come in here and I can select a portion of it. And is this basically the same thing that we're talking about? Or I think we should do head to head. You know, like I think we should see, I mean, it does look like Illustrator has broken that down piece by piece. And so, and, I, and that just did, you just did it automatically. You just told it to just do the... 
do the thing? No, Alex, I've been sitting here doing it manually for the last 30 minutes while in the gas. But you just pushed a button and it just did the auto trace. It, it, it's called um, in the Illustrator, it's under object, it's called image trace. And you say make an image yeah. trace. You have some options in terms of how you do it. And I did high quality photo. And I will admit, uh, it'd be really cool if like every single, you know, flower wasn't its own object. It's not. I could I could probably gang those together in layers and that would take an enormous amount of time because I will tell you uh, that these strokes are incredibly fine. I can't see the difference between right. the traced image and the painted image. And this is uh, this is a photo that I took with my iPhone in my mother's kitchen with pretty good flat lighting of the, of the painting. This painting is about, uh, four feet tall. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, haven't used that tool for a long time and I admit that I wrote it off years ago. Um, it may have gotten was, a lot better. So it may have gotten a lot better in the, in the thing. It, it was kind of one of those things that we were just like, Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah. But and it, was, I don't but use it, it may have gotten a- considerably better. And I don't use it on the daily, so I I'm not like an expert in well, image and, trace. But I but I figured out this much just while we yeah. were doing the show here. There's there's the image trace has been around for thirty years, maybe you know, like you know, of some version that 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 they had. It's just that the the quality of the of the what what we'd get out of it was usually not something that I would 30. use. Thirty years, thirty yeah. years. Yeah, I don't know if I said 40 years, but Illustrator has been around for 40 years, but but 30 years. But since the early 90s, it's been, there's been some version of this uh, out there. It just hasn't worked very well, you know, and I would I would do it and then it took me, then I tried to clean it up and then I would just go, I'm just going to trace it. It was one of the first things that you learned how to do in Illustrator, like if you take any class, is you would spend days and days and days of just getting logos and you just you trace them. And, and you talk about where you put the points and where you, where you, you know, um, put the Beziers and, you know, everything else. Uh, go ahead, John. So I did exactly what Chris is funny because I did exactly what Chris did, which is I took a um, mid-journey, pretty complex mid-journey drawing, brought it into Illustrator and did the, did the trace on it. And it came out pretty good. Not perfect, but pretty good. We need to do a side-by-side comparison. Yeah, no, totally. And we have to remember that that the um, that, that mid, mid-journey trace, or was it mid-journey trace or mid-journey trace? is free in <laughs> Illustrator costs uh, money. Um, and and I, I admit one of the reasons I haven't tested Illustrator recently is because I don't have it. Like I don't pay for Illustrator. Um, yeah, go ahead, Bill. Chris, I was just interesting. When you had that up and you were showing the traces, the, the white flower on the right side was kind of cut in half. And I was wondering, did you draw a bounding box to trace something inside of it? Or did that automatically just segment it like that? Yeah, so what I did, let me turn that layer back on. Um, I could go in and click here and you're seeing, I'm getting that little tiny thing there, right? Like these are, this is extremely high resolution. And what I did here is I just drew a bounding box. Okay. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so if I needed just that white flower, I you could draw a bounding box around that and it would do the whole flower. It wasn't auto segmenting something. Yeah. But, but to isolate it from the rest of it, you'd have to get pretty... Um, I, I don't know a, I don't know Illustrator well enough how to like, 
I mean, it's and, basically and again, this what you're doing shift a lot, clicking stuff. A lot of the AI stuff is going to get to, which is that it's going to start separating all that stuff out for you. Like it's just going to start, you know, and breaking up those things into, uh, and, and I believe that Illustrator will do a lot of that. Like one of the things I was doing yesterday uh, is I was getting Midjourney to produce a, a logo and it threw text into it. You know, it's got text in the you know the logo, and so it, you know it does the t- typical Midjourney. I was getting Midjourney to do this, and Midjourney was just throwing in the garbly gook for text. And then I took it into Photoshop and I selected that area and I said, e- erase the text. <laughs> and so so Illustrate. So so Photoshop went in and got rid of just left the banner that the text was on, but got rid of the text. And I was like, oh, thank you. You know, so 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 you can get. So I'm, I, I, one thing I have found is that mixing Mid Journey with Photoshop has been the Photoshop raw stuff that it creates is not as good as Mid Journey in my opinion. But going in and fixing the Mid Journey stuff with Photoshop is uh, ninja. Yeah, uh, go ahead, uh, Jeffrey. Yeah, that's. I was going to say the Photoshop has a very similar tool to what uh, Illustrator has. The only thing is that Illustrator's probably is going to get a little bit more in depth when it comes to uh, picking out. Because I can actually, like, if I wanted to remove a background, I could do the highlight. I could actually uh, hover over it, and then the one, like, if I was to do my uh, image right here, it would uh, highlight me and put me in purple, and then I could, uh, and then I just click on it and outline, and then I'd make a little fixes right there. Right. Uh, doing in the tr- it's trace journey is very interesting. It does give you an XML file to work from. So if there is a bunch of incorrect stuff, you could actually text edit it or go into Illustrator or whatever program you're using and then bring it from there. So you could start working in uh, in Illustrator, take it out, and then move it to another illustration software to bring it in, which is pretty cool. Uh, so there's a little bit of uh, functionality. The only other thing that I'm worried about is I don't know where Tracer, Trace Journey is coming from. If it's a part of MidJourney, if, uh, if it's not, there it's could not. be some lawsuits on that. But that's a different story. Yeah, go ahead, Carl. So as far as the uh, converting to a vector, I remember seeing a white paper probably about 10, 15 years ago where it does machine learning. Um, essentially, it does polynomial, essentially curves. Um, polynomial curves can go in any direction at any time. And it simply does a curve. It looks at the original, compares it, it says, is this better or worse than what I've done? And it just keeps on doing this kind of evolutionary. So if we do high quality, that's probably what it's doing in high quality. Um, it's simply going back and forth until it goes, is this close? Is this not this close? And there'll be a threshold. So because it would take forever if it got to perfect. So this is simply a threshold. They've got this, they'll take, you know, five minutes to do, you know, certain certain image. But essentially, this is why Illustrator and well, Adobe's probably just looked at this white paper. I think that was out of either MIT or Stanford. Um, and, it, and it can take rasted images and just convert them to vector, like actual photographs. So it's kind of crazy what it can do now. But it does take a lot of computing power, which we have now. Next question. Alex Lindsay, Nevada, California. Someone said, did anyone watch the Office Hours soccer coverage? We learned a lot on Sunday. Go ahead, John. I watched the um, last part of the first half and the entire second half, and I played soccer since I was in second grade, and so I've watched lots of matches on TV. I, I thought it was pretty pretty good. <laughs> first time, it's, well, it's, it, it what was, happens when you have a bunch of people that have never done soccer before. The so only, thing, definitely, yeah, the only thing I missed was not having the clock and the score on the screen the entire time because that's what I'm normally used to seeing. But yeah. Good, yeah. good work. Good, Bill. 
I popped in just for a little bit, and I want to commend the announcers that you had. You know, it's really hard to watch soccer if you don't have somebody explaining what's going on, because obviously it is such a broad, wide game with long passes and many players strategically running. And so you need to stay wide. And that's a hard thing to watch and understand if you're not really familiar with the game. So again, props to your announcers, because they really did help keep it interesting for me as a modest soccer fan who didn't know this team or these players. They did a great job. Go ahead, Carl. So, yeah, as John said, yeah, so um, the real estate you had with your score box up in the corner was quite large. Um, Okay if you're watching it on a phone, I guess. But, yeah, but um, for a first time, it was actually quite good considering. Um, But, yeah, the the time is the one thing. And the time is continuous. I know the, um, the referee will do extra time. But yeah. you just stop the clock at 45 and 90, and then the whistle blows. Um, other than that, the only other thing was the pole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had a poll. So we were at a location. So there was a couple, you know, what, what, you know, one of the things that happened, of course, is that we haven't done this before. We've never been at that facility, that, that facility before. Um, and I mean, we did, I did a walkthrough to make sure I knew where to go. Um, and then we got there and um, we had had some, some, some shipping errors. And so we didn't end up with the Teradex that we expected. So we were going to put cameras down below because of all the traffic where we were, there was no easy way to run cables there. So if we weren't going to get, which we didn't really, we thought we'd be able to run cables over it. And then when we got there and things started picking up, we were like, oh yeah, we're not. And and this is why we did this soccer game, by the way, we're planning to do more next year and potentially one more this year. Um, the goal was let's, let's just go do something and we're going to turn it on and see how it goes. And and we're going to learn a lot. We weren't um, we weren't charging for it. <laughs> so, so, and it was a good opportunity for us to have an excuse to get together and have some, uh, you know, uh, before and after and, and hang out and, and, and also learn a little bit about this. And, and so, um, we got there a little earlier than they were ready to let us in. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, um, kind of a park. So we couldn't really push for the standard load in. So we ended up, um, only having two hours instead of four hours to, to load in. So it was a very fast setup. Um, we, uh, you know, at, because of that, a lot of the stuff, you know, we started throwing stuff off, off the side of the, uh, off the side of the ship of what we were planning to do versus what we actually did and ended up with all the cameras up there rather than down in the audience, which is where we were, or we were planning to get a little closer so that we, we, we do it. We'd be able to not have anything in between us and the, in the field. Um, the, uh, the, we used the 12 Ks, you know, the black magic 12 Ks, but we had still lenses on them, which is a little bit more challenging because you don't have uh, back focus. And so, so we had a couple 100 to 400s and, and a uh, 16 to 35, um, on the wide. And so we were able to cut between those. Um, again, we, we found a memo live that graphic that pops up and the graphics that popped up along the bottom were all done in memo live, but then sent out as a, uh, just a Luma key back out to the, to the, um, ATEM switcher. Um, I think that our next version of this will get rid of all the switching and everything else. And we we did get the licensing finished up with uh, the live view. So the next time we do this, we're just going to plug all the cameras and the mics into the live view and send it back to San Rafael and have it edited there. And the version after that, maybe even in the cloud, there's some cloud versions of that that we'll take a look at. But anyway, so the so we we'd probably do it slightly differently. But it was a really um, it was a fun experience. You, if you listen to it, you'll notice that the audio gets progressively better because it started off with just the announcers, you know, talking. And then suddenly you'll see us kind of fiddle and then you'll see a snap to where we had, X, you know, some XY uh, uh, shotguns that that Mickey and, and Derek were putting in while we were, <laughs> while the show was going on. So if you're listening to comms, one thing I realized is while we do these, especially these test ones, we should have you listening to comms because it was great to, I mean, it was great to listen to everyone trying to figure all the bits and pieces out. So anyway, 
uh, I think it's up there for a little while longer. Uh, we're probably not going to keep it up there because it's a little confusing to have it on our site. But but the um, uh, if you're interested, you can listen to it, and, and we'll, we'll we're going to do more. Uh, next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. Up next, one for Carl Asmussen. Good to see you. What were your faves from NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants? Go ahead, George. Um, I had a flashback of a couple of months. What did I see at NAM? Um, unfortunately, this is a this is an example of what not to do with a with the show booth. Have your company name clearly displayed everywhere because when i watch this video back i've watched it 10 times and i'm trying to remember i can't figure out what company this was but check this this is an 81 driver array speaker cabinet that is so steerable that they had three different sets of program material and depending on where you stood in front of the array you would hear each one of them and the guy is showing how he's setting up virtual speaker cabinets in 3d space and deciding where those speakers would be in that space and then using this AR overlay, deciding the coverage area of, of those speakers and steering that around with an iPad and saying, okay, that's the coverage I want to have with my drivers. I thought that was really stinking cool. And yet I cannot figure out what the company, even the logo is sort of, you can't really interpret what the logo is. But uh, that was that's something that definitely stood out there. I can see the guy's shirt right there. So I can't quite tell what it says. Um, but I thought that was some really that was some really cool tech from from Nam this year. Good, Carl. Um, so there was a handful of scents that came out. Um, so pretty much the there was a lot that came out last year. There was a lot that was announced earlier this year, and there's a handful that got shown, but no big flagships. The flagships all came out last year. Um, essentially, there's going to be some flagships coming out later. So uh, Behringer's never had these things as far as their scents. Um, they but they did do announcements during Nam just on their website and on YouTube. Um, pretty much they've locked, they've finished off doing their, there's a trilogy of um, very cheap synths that they're doing, which is the Crave, it was the first, um, and now they've got the, the next two, the Edge has come out, the Edge has been, the Edge went up on, I believe went up on Toman for sale two years ago, and then it said sold out, they never sold one, <laughs> it took two years, that was a chip shortage, um, and then essentially that was actually, the, I think it was a chip that converts the MIDI signal to um, to audio, or to CV. Um, and then essentially there've been a lot of other uh, modular stuff. So Pittsburgh modular actually came out with a semi-modular, which is pretty cool. Um, that's actually getting a lot of rave. And then Roland wasn't there as well. Roland actually did theirs just on YouTube in a press release. Um, and they did the SH4D, which a lot of people are going crazy for because it's essentially, um, it's a completely new architecture for, well, it's an evolution of an architecture for them, but it's, it's so deep that YouTubers are taking weeks and weeks just to review it. So they'll, they'll do a review, then a week later they'll do another review, just another part of it. And so you're getting these YouTubers doing about four or five hours, and they still haven't got to the bottom of that synth yet. And so this is something Roland has rolled out. So the, the SH4D is pretty much the biggest synth that came out during that period, even though it technically wasn't at the show. Next question. Next question comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. When synth designer Chris Huggett died, Novation had to reverse engineer the peak summit synths to be able to release software updates. Wouldn't similar issues arrive restoring a Neve console, for example, when the original designer isn't available? Go ahead, Carl. So I have a summit just to my right. Um, that's not exactly true. So Dave Spears, um, he worked with the team so dave spears is still kicking around of course geforce um so chris was the person who came up with the idea for um, fpga oscillators so essentially the fpga oscillator 
what its output is analog and then it just goes through analog filter so it's an analog synth it just happens that the the effects like the reverb and delay is done in an fpga and that the oscillator itself so the oscillator itself is just an fpga that actually outputs out of the FP, out of the um oscillator section is analog so it is an analog oscillator it's just how it's creating those shapes it's doing an fpga um but the fpga is actually being programmed in analog circuitry so if this and that kind of analog circuitry which roland does as well and I think yamaha as well um with chris passing away he hand so chris handed novation over to focus right so focus right um essentially took over because chris wanted to retire he was getting old um and same thing happened with dave smith of course dave smith sold his company to focus right which is part of the novation family um so essentially a lot of these guys that came out of the 70s um chris huggett of course did the uh the wasp and then he did the oscar um so the wasp and the oscar are very famous because they have digital oscillators so this is what Chris is well known for, because he says you want the oscillator to be precise, but you want everything else to be, you know, analog, very um, analog feel, which is, the, you know, the amplifier, the overdrive, the filter, and the, the envelopes don't really matter so much. You want snappy envelopes, you actually want digitally controlled envelopes, but anyway. Um, but essentially because Dave Spears worked on um, the, the summit, um, essentially all that code, and Dave Spears is a software genius, all that code um, is quite well known. So it's not like um, Chris Huggett passing was uh, a big um, inconvenience to the company. Um, his input was really, really important as far as the architecture for the synth, but the actual programming synth was done by different people. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand is back. This one for Alex Lindsay particularly. Are you showing your children how these tools like Midjourney, and do you think that this should be taught in the curriculum in schools, including ethics and things like that? Yeah. I think that we're going to see a lot of AI. Um, I, I, my kids and I spend a lot of time going back and forth with Midjourney and ChatGPT um, to the point where a lot of times, every, you know, my my kids and my my wife and I will ask Midjourney or ChatGPT something and then search for it and so on and so forth. And oftentimes, what what we do talk about is cross checking it with actual reality <laughs> or some version of it uh, that isn't just asking uh, ChatGPT the question. Um, but that'd be the same as if you're asking somebody. ChatGTP is about as accurate as the average person that if you walked up on a, a random shirt and asked somebody a question, <laughs> they, they gave you an answer. It's about the same, uh, you know. Like if, if they if they had some, you know, if they had read about it. Uh, it was it has it's a very it's very book smart. Just doesn't have a lot of experience in the real world because it never existed in the real world. And so, um, so we we use it a fair bit. I mean, we use Midjourney a lot. Um, there's a lot of Midjourney uh, floating around. My kids don't have subscriptions to it, but they, um, but we definitely um, play with it together and. And, um, and I um, send out some lock screens and all kinds of other stuff that we're creating or, or we do, I do stuff for them and they use ChatGPT all the time. Um, I, you know, I don't think that, uh, I, I think that schools have to figure out how to incorporate these tools into what they're doing that, you know, I think right now they're resisting them because the teachers don't understand what to do with them. Um, but I think there's plenty of ways that, that they can be useful. Um, I think that also like the big thing is kids are right using it for term papers. And the bottom line is the term papers were never that useful as it was, um, to, to gauge things. And so, and what we did, I was talking about this on Twitter with somebody yesterday is, um, we had teachers that had us had to deliver, we had to deliver stuff for our term paper, that ran all term, we had different deliverables. We had research deliverables. We had to present the information. We had to show the information. By the time we wrote it, it was nothing. And that, that was the art idea for the teacher was to give us, to allow us to succeed. Don't just ask for a paper at the end of the term, but use it as a learning experience. And we learned everybody else's because we presented it 
no one read the papers because no one reads those papers. And so, but the pr- presentations from all of our classmates to the whole class about what they were learning before they wrote the term paper allowed us to learn all these other things about all the things that they were writing about, you know. And so it was actually a really great collaborative experience. It was definitely something that I paid a lot of attention to of how that worked. And and um, at that point, you might also just write the paper, <laughs> you know, like or, or have ChatGPT take all the information you just accumulate. You learned the ideas. Um, and, uh, and so I think that that's going to be, I think what you're going to end up with though, is you could have people writing a lot of papers, um, you know, smaller papers and had chat GPT grade those papers, tell them where they could have been better, show them places that they can make it more active voice, et cetera, all those things and give them more feedback and do it at a level that teacher could never do because the teacher, the teachers can read them after that, but the chat, chat GPT can help them actually produce a better paper, you know, in that area. But um, asking kids to write about things that they don't care about, 10 pages of it, you're going to get people trying to find a shortcut because it's dumb. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, real quick. Uh, I, I don't know where I heard this. It may have been here. that There was a, uh, I believe it was a high school teacher, may have been college. Obviously, I'm not paying attention. Uh, where they, the professor gave a prompt to all the students and said, Make Chat GPT write this paper based on this prompt. What I want you to turn into me is your assessment and basically right. fact checking of said paper. Yeah. And it yeah. taught the it taught the students is like, oh, this thing's not as smart as it makes itself <laughs> out to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think the teachers have to learn how to dance with that. All right, we are changing subjects to our second hour, and we have Matthew Fetcher here from AudioKit, uh, and we're really, really excited uh, to, to have Matthew back. Hey, Matthew, can you, can you hear us okay? Hey, so glad to be here. Yeah, 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 good to have you here. Um, and uh, you have a new application, a new iPad app, right, uh, called King of FM, is that right? Yeah, it's completely free and based on the most popular synthesizer that's been on more hit songs than any hit song in history, the DX7. I've got one right here. Uh, but the catch is most of those songs were before 1989. So it was a really popular, <laughs> really popular synth in the eighties. Uh, what, what made it different? What made it so different? It, you know, it had that, that crystal type sound, you know, and mm-hmm. I can describe it all day, but the thing is, I mean, you could just download it for free and yeah. get the, get the full thing. Uh, but before we talk about that, I've got to say, I just started as a professor at my alma mater at Purdue University as a music uh-huh. tech professor. And just like hearing all these ways where I could use chat GPT, you know, it's, it's, it's you a can challenge. get it to write songs. It'll give you chords. Right. <laughs> you right. can ask it. They're not very good songs so far. So far that we, we've played a couple of them. They're like, eh, it's okay. Um, but, but it's a good start. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And it's great for programming, but um, as some of you may know, Writing audio software for the iPhone and iPad, it's really, really challenging. So AudioKit is pretty much the the number one way that people add that to their apps. We have pre-built tools like reverbs, uh, distortions, filters, all those kind of things. So you don't have to write that low-level C++ code. Uh, Which is key. It is so, I mean, like it really has been, I feel like there's been a huge explosion since AudioKit. Um, you know, there's been an explosion in, in music apps because it, that layer, in, in the same way that Apple makes a lot of things easy on the interface, and a lot of there's a lot of libraries that Apple provides that makes everything run just a little bit smoother and easy, it's easier for a programmer. I think AudioKit has really done a huge service to the industry of making a lot of the subsystems, you know, not something that you had to write from scratch. 
Yeah, and that catalyst of like music and technology, it's like it helps people make their first apps. We've had so many stories of people in emerging countries where they've made their first app and they don't make a ton of money, but for their their locale, it's enough to change their lives and change their families' lives. And right. they did this all because they they knew they could do it once they had some tools to build upon. Now what it now what did it how did you get started with AudioKit in the first place? How did this how what was the genesis of that? Well, it all started with Ari Prohaska, and he was working at MIT on some things. And then Swift came out, and I wanted to be involved with his work because I was really enchanted by the whole audio stuff on the iPad. So I converted everything to Swift uh, from Objective-C. Those who don't notice, those are the programming languages that we use to make apps. And so after that, I, you know, it's all volunteer work. We don't get paid anything to do it. It's MIT open source. It's it's a labor of love, probably like what you guys are doing every morning. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a way to help the community and just like put some good stuff out in the universe. And that's you know what this latest app is too. Well, yeah, and and um, well, tell us a little bit about the so it's the the DX7, right? And what what made the DX7 so special? Um, you know, to uh, why why would you want to reproduce it? Well. The thing is, it's like, it's never really been reproduced. Like people have tried, but all they ended up doing is sampling it. So I got my hands on this incredible unit. It was at uh, Electric Lady Studios in New York. Uh, You know, the one started by uh, Jimi Hendrix. And this particular unit was actually played by David Bowie. I should probably get it insured or something. Uh, But it just sounds so good. And I made some samples and sent it to some producer friends of mine in Atlanta. And they got it to Herbie Hancock. And he ended up playing it in the studio, right? And he could play anything. But he just loved the sound of this particular unit. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world to have like a legend play my sounds. But then I realized, hey, I run an open source project. I can give this away for free to everyone. And now everyone can experience these sounds and like make something cool with it. Can you show us a little bit about how it works? Uh, yeah, yeah. I could share the screen. Yeah. And okay. um, I've actually got it up. Uh, and I can show you guys some logic stuff, too. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Matthew, did you just sample the patches, or do you have the full functionality of the programmability of the DX7? Well, this one is is... Just the patches. The thing with the DX7 is everyone basically used all the presets. And there is some open source code for uh, the DX7. And basically every VST uses that same sound. But it only really gets you like 95% of the way there. And I think humans connect with tone, especially in this age of AI music making coming up, where if we can get that full tone, people can kind of experience and connect with that. So that was one of the reasons to... And I just hear from all these producers, like people that produce for Jay-Z and Alicia Keys, and they're using my app over any kind of VST because they just want that real sampled sound. So that's a great question, though. Um, but it's got... We can't hear Okay, that. go ahead. Oh, we, can, we just can't hear, you, hear it right now. Is it, we, should we be able oh, to hear Oh, yeah, you can't hear the sounds. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but definitely, it's it's got over... Are you able to play the sounds in? Oh gosh! I think if you do share, are you in the same with the shared screen? If you share computer computer audio, it should send it in. It's a checkbox in your lower left. Yeah, it's a checkbox in the lower left of the share screen. You might want to stop. You might have to stop sharing screen and start again. Yeah. So, so the um, because we'd love to hear it. I I I think it sounds amazing. I I uh, was playing with it before the show, 
and uh and it it's um are you gonna do the ob8 next <laughs> uh there is some open source code that our, our t- one of our teammates there we go we hear it you're on oh wow and you can hear it's kind of got that dreamy sound yeah. uh, that you know from the 80s uh i'm just playing this on my keyboard with one hand so it sounds like crap but you could imagine um it shows it around a little bit yeah it does have like a sequencer so you can make cool sounds if you don't how play do you, keyboards. How do you make the sequence? How do you uh, how do you program the sequencer in this specific app? Like, how do you get started with what you just showed us there? Well, I'd invite you all to go to audiokit.io uh, and, <laughs> and we we do have uh, some, some like, sequencers uh, and stuff. Because if you're going to start from scratch, it's going to take forever. And even if you're using Chat GPT, uh, it's still really hard because it doesn't know audio programming. It's so niche that you right. still kind of have to use a library. So you're not using, you're not building the sequence here. You're building it somewhere else before you brought it in, or did you build the that right there? Uh, yeah. So it's all all kind of like pre-made tools with Audio Kit. Like almost right. everything in this app is open source. Right. Uh, like every like little like these reverbs and delays, they're just mm-hmm. something you could add with like one or two lines of code to your own apps if you're making them. Right. Um. And I'll show you guys something really cool. Um, has anyone checked out plugins and logic yet? A lot of people don't know that you can even do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so I, I made this new track here. And then there's down on the bottom left here, you can see it says instrument. If I go here and go down to audio units on the very bottom, you can add any kind of third party instrument hmm. so like like moog the synthesizer maker and a lot of desktop users make their their apps available to use in logic and it's a fraction of the cost instead of a hundred bucks you're only paying like ten dollars right and so for free no extra charge like most of these apps do this where now i have it in my daw wow look at that yeah That's and it automatically so resizes and you can record and do things like that and and what are the what are the um uh how do the controllers work so you you're right now you're using your keyboard what else can you tie into that keyboard to run it oh okay that's a really great question so i don't i don't work for uh this company but i really love it it's these are uh these bluetooth uh Uh x key airs Mm -hmm. and you can just automatically pairs with your iPad and it's no latency whatsoever. And it's uh, called an X key air. Yes. And they're super thin. You can put them in your backpack, go with you whenever, it, and it's just one key and you're, you're playing. And is it, um, is that, it looks like the same, is it pretty much the same key structure as what you have in the, in the app? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and you can even like map controls. Okay. So here's, here's another little controller. Right. And you can see it has little knobs. Uh, and there's something called MIDI assign, which basically you could press one knob in the in the app, twist right. the knob, and then you could treat it like a hardware controller. So it's almost like a piece of hardware. Right. And and any kind of compliant interface, you can plug in usually a MIDI keyboard. So any any MIDI keyboard you buy for like a hundred bucks and up probably will work with your iPad or or iPhone. Right. And it's really surprising how many people don't know that you could, you know, play your iPhone with an external keyboard. And it's it's a pro instrument. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and, and I've seen, I've seen artists bringing those up and then they have their little iPad setting up there and they've got their little keyboard and it's, it's kind of a quick setup for them. And then they, and then they start playing it and we're, we're using those in shows, you know, like they're, you know, they're, um, you know, they're putting those in and they're able to take full advantage of them. It's, it's pretty, I think to your point that a lot of people aren't, aren't totally, uh, aren't totally tied into it. So do you want to show us anything else in the app as far as the, uh, how it works? Oh, any, okay. any demos? Uh, oh my keep gosh! On you, do it. <laughs> you know, as even though I'm a college professor, I, I have uh, very little prepared today. <laughs> That's so totally fine. Totally fine. Threw you off there a little bit, uh, um, but but I think that it's it is a uh, um, what I was doing is going through and just really kind of amazed at all the different sounds that I could create. You know, there's a lot of you know creating. You know, the, the reverb I think helps a lot as far as as really kind of filling up a space, um, you know, and, and building something that's really ambient, um, as well as, uh, you know, switching. I, I get lost in these apps, I, I will admit. And I'm, I'm really glad that they're, <laughs> that they're free uh, because the, the, the time it takes me, I think, is, is the real uh, uh, challenge there because, it's, um, because I can spend a lot of time. Now, this is a different one. This is Saga. Sega. Okay, so this is uh this is our last uh, synth we release, and if anyone wants to like help support AudioKit, like a hundred percent of the sales go to the open source project, and this is based off the old Sega Genesis. Do you guys remember that from yeah. the sixteen bit sounds? So we sampled those chips, and we're able to go and hack the games and get those instruments that they used in each game, and to create this. And you can see it's it's a lot of fun. That's so, really cool. I'm definitely taking back to the arcade. Yeah, it's really uh, the sound effects from like Street Fighter and things like that. So if you have a project where you need some video game sounds, a lot of people are doing 8-bit, but this is 16-bit. Right. So take it, it's 8-bit better. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> and again, to, to your point, you could have this just as an, this is just another... Um, uh, you have another layer inside of your uh, inside of logic where you just add those things into it. So, so it's not something that you have to try to go out, record a piece of it, bring it back into logic or whatever. It's all just, it's all built into the, into logic itself or can be. Absolutely. Um, and it, it works, you know, and before, you know, all our apps work with GarageBand, which is free if, if people don't want to pay right. for logic. But I mean, logic, I think it's really opened the door. Like, Hey, the iPad is a real valid instrument and production tool for music now yeah no absolutely absolutely let's jump into some of the questions um what's the first question the, the first question is mine actually i was wondering if you can help people unfamiliar with the sound of a ds7 by referencing some of the big 80s songs that use the tool was there a signature kind of sound that came out of it okay i, I would think about maybe um like the doogie hauser theme or a lot of the Michael Jackson records, or Whitney Houston especially, any kind of ballad with that crystal piano sound. That's not a, like a piano, but it's not a synth. And so it's really that beautiful sound like that. And it's still used a lot in R&B today. So. And were some of the dance things, like I saw on the list of 80s top hits, things like Funky Town, which was a really unique sound at the time. I remember it coming through. Uh, was Would that have been a DS7 kind of patch? I think there was one DX7 patch in there, and I think there was also a, a Moog synthesizer in there okay. as well, which is also something that you could use in Logic these days. I think it's you can get it for under 10 bucks, and you could have for free, 
and $10, you can recreate these 80s hits, you know, on your iPad. Let's go to the next question. Uh, next question comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Steinberg has recently introduced Halion 7, which incorporates a DX7 compatible FM engine and can import DX and TX sounds. Where do you see your app's unique selling point in comparison? And he's got a link there. <laughs> that, that it's free. Uh, uh, <laughs> so well, that's you know, a pretty unique selling point. But yes. no, there, there's a lot more to it. I'm just saying that if you're, as you compare, how would you compare to the Steinberg? Well, so that actually uses, well, I don't want to speak other companies but it's it's a not so dirty secret in the industry that basically every every vst from the hundred dollar ones you can buy to to the free ones like dext they all use the same open source dx7 code uh so we actually offer it too and you know you could make an app like that but you don't get the tone and i think there's a reason why people can like you explain Herbie Hancock, a little bit? can you explain a little bit about how you don't get the tone from that oh okay uh so it's like, so like if you buy like a vi an old violin at Walmart or something for like 50 bucks, I, I don't know, but versus like a hundred year old, like Stradivarian, like right. one might, you know, be okay. And one might make you cry when you hear it. There's just like some imperceptible thing. Like when you're playing the notes, little... but what's the, what's the difference between yours and the ones that are just the samples that you're talking, you know, what, what creates that tone that makes it different? I think a lot of it is the DA converters and every, every unit is different back then. And so I think for this one, this particular unit, it just had a little bit more magic. And I think that's why that studio had it. And that's when people heard it there, there's this channel called power DX seven. So there's like a niche for everything. And right. he even said, he's like, wow, that's the best sounding DX seven I've ever heard. You know, and his whole focus is on DX seven. So it's like, you know, there's different units. And different things and they all have their own little quirks right. uh so it for the average person they might not notice but like i think if for a professional musician and you want the advantage of having the best sound you can i this is something i would use versus i don't use the emulations i'm kind of a snob <laughs> in that respect right. no absolutely yeah, go ahead carl yeah so the dx7 was the first digital synth fully digital synth um and so it was actually 12-bit so we were talking about 16-bit with the Sega. So it's actually 12-bit, which also was the uh, the D50, which came a few years later, which was a bit of a very different synth, actually. Um, but it wasn't FM. Um, but because it was FM and because the filter path, so the part after the actual oscillators, or the docker oscillators, they're called uh, carrier modulators, but the part after the sound generators, it goes through filters and all that. They were digital filters as well, but they're all 12-bit. But they weren't always 12-bit. Some actually had their some... as as Matthew was saying, there was actually some versions and there is a DX7S, um, which had a 13 bit, like a uh, afterpath and all that and multiplexes in there. They had different multiplexes coming from different companies that Yamaha used, but that's why if Matthew's doing samples of an actual DX7, it will sound more nostalgic than, um, something that you create maybe with, uh, with emulation because an emulation, they'll just go 32 bit. And what they do is they take their 32 bit and then bit crush it down to 12 because it's easier to do. Um, right. the only company I know that's actually done a 12 bit processor for a recreation is Roland and they've actually done it in hardware. Um, so Roland actually made a 12 bit processor for their, uh, D 50 recreation. They did a few years ago. Um, but there is a switch in there where you can actually make it 32 if you want to, but everyone puts it back on a 12 bit, but it's because of that 12 bit engine that we, we don't have anymore. We don't have 12 bit D to a converters anymore. Like they have in DX seven. Right. And, and, and Matthew, so what does it take to create those sounds from the, from the keyboard itself? Like, how does that, 
what is the process to, to do that? Oh, a lot of late nights and coffee. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're dealing with like old hardware from the 80s, it's it can take, you know, a lot of time just to load a patch, you know, and then I try to right. tweak it a little bit to make it so it can be sampled without any artifacts. So it is is a labor of love. I think I recorded, uh, gosh, maybe like 3,000 different sounds and then whittled it wow. down to the top 100 you hear in the app just to not affect people. And I really appreciate that segue into the D50. So the D50 was Roland's answer to the, the DX7. And so Roland couldn't create, recreate the magic of the DX7. So they just sampled it. <laughs> they sampled their competitor and put it into another keyboard. Uh, so my next app is actually called King of Digital, and it kind of simulates uh, the D50. And it's illegal to sample uh, a D50 because it's based on sample instruments. So I'm going to be sampling the original source sense that they sampled. So I'll be going back to all the keyboards <laughs> in the 70s and like completely recreating that process. And they would combine it with rain sticks and, and percussion. So this is another label of love where... I'm just like recreating this process they did in the 80s to make this new synth for the iPad in 2023 or 2024. And and when you're doing those those samples, are you sampling? Is it a direct out of the out of the keyboard? So you're doing a direct out into a recorder to to make that happen. Uh, sometimes, and I've got uh, some old reel to reel, and sometimes some friends let me use their studio. So anything I can do to add some sort of like magic or things, so it's not you know in the box like an right. emulation. I think that's what people want. They want something unique for their identity and sound. That's really interesting. Uh, next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand has this one. He notes he wrote FX, et cetera, trading software at stockbrokers back in the day. Graphs were pretty easy given I was using Power Builder. How hard is it to do graphs in Swift for audio to graft uh, oscillators, I guess, and so forth, uh, and OSCs. have them oh OSCs, I'm sorry, and, and so forth, and have them respond to mouse and or touch to change the sounds. So, I guess could they be more specific with that question? Are you looking at like the how hard is it to work with the graphs? I think it's the, the question is is I think he was he's basically how hard is it to build the graphs and interact with the graphs um, inside of uh, inside of the app? Oh. Uh, there are a lot of open source like uh, audio graphing and uh, output and plot plotting. I'm I'm using just the stock uh, plot here, mm -hmm. uh, but there is a lot of open source code that will do that for you. Uh, right. Oh, very good. Yeah. Um, next question. Peter Moore again from Auckland, New Zealand. In the 1990s, creative of Sound Blaster fame bought up a lot of companies like, sadly, his favorite, Insonic. We never saw another Insonic synth after the acquisition. Is it possible with AudioKit to sample Insonics, giving I, he still has his Insonic VFX SD? Uh, yeah, if it's a pure synth, we can sample it. There are some legalities where if it's sample-based, you can't sample it, obviously, because it's someone's digital property that they created. But a pure synthesizer, it's legal to sam sample, which is why we could do the DX7. Uh, on the Insonic front, I'd recommend an app called Chompler, C-H-O-M-P-L-R, and that's loosely based on the Insonic ASR10. So there are some options. But yeah, the Insonic stuff was cool. Now, so so with with the library that you have there, and the if you are um, 
you the sampling takes a long time. How hard is it to code this? It sounds like a lot of that stuff is already kind of pre-built in AudioKit. Um, how much more work does it take to actually put put it together? Well, I think that's the magic, and I think that's where all like software development is going. Where we've got everything online. I've got the base you can start with. Uh, and it's just a matter of arranging your controls and your interface and connecting everything up. So, uh, gosh, this took me about maybe two or three weeks. Uh, but, you know, someone could definitely make an app in like a couple months or so. Uh, maybe not this complicated, but a lot of the code is already there. So I think like moving forward, we're going to see like ChatGPT write a lot of the basic stuff and then people will put it together into a product. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm looking forward to like, I, I still feel like there's this gap between shortcuts and Swift that wants to be nodal, you know, and we see a bit, we see little bits and pieces of that inside of the new uh, reality creator pro is this, you know, building all these functions and all these things and just drawing nodes to it of going like, I've got interface elements and these, these tie in and this attenuates this and this attenuates this and being able to just drag in all the the nodes into it and then having that wrap up into an app like that to me that's the i would generate a lot of people building a lot of stuff <laughs> yeah i i think like this time and two years from now the app store is just going to be flooded with apps it's it's going to be like spotify and you know, everyone's going to have a, their own app so right yeah no absolutely uh next question kenny hampton in greenville illinois when you record samples from a keyboard how do you account for the staccato or legato sounds or key pressure effects from a keyboard how is this done so and and like king of fm on like like i guess the money patches like uh the the electric piano we have like 26 layers so if you press it softly it's going to play a different sample than if you press it hard so there's like 26 different velocity layers. So you, if you're just playing it on the on-screen keyboard, you're not getting the full effect. It's meant to be played with a real keyboard. Uh, and that's you know something too that I'm gonna be teaching in my class about sampling. You don't want any kind of time artifacts, like any kind of LFOs. I'm getting kind of technical here, but anything yeah, that's a, a delay or a reverb, you wanna take that out and get as close to the source sound as possible. Then I recreate that all with code. So, right. so I'm not really just like sampling a complete patch. I'm dialing it way back and then recreating it with the code so that you have maximum flexibility. And there is legato um, and glide and all that cool stuff built into the app. Next question. Uh, it comes from me. And I was just curious as a professor, can you talk about any of the trends in interest or focus you're seeing from the young people coming into the business today? Are there, are there things you're seeing? Well, uh, most recently I, I worked, I was in Atlanta working with um, some colleges, Morehouse and Georgia Tech, and down there, they are really interested in mobile music production, more so than even with a laptop. And it's kind of interesting to see, like, there's this, like, this whole gap, you know, where, like, a lot of our customers are, like, age 40 and over, and now, like, with Gen Z, it's almost like it skipped the millennials. So, I don't know. I don't know what happened to the millennials. We'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> they just got lost somewhere. Uh, yeah, next question. Next question from Douglas Carmichael. I've heard a lot of good things about Code with Chris for learning iOS and macOS development with Swift. Are there any other resources you recommend, free or paid? And he says he knows Apple has their own tutorials and has a link to their site. 
Any, uh, yeah, someone want to get started. So if someone wants to start building their own music apps with AudioKit and they've never programmed before, how would you recommend they get they get off the ground? Yeah, certainly there's a lot of cool online stuff like Code with Chris. Uh, another one is Ray Wenderlich. Uh, but it's like whatever works for you and gets your style, like there's so much to learn and it can be overwhelming. But I would say the key is to try to build something simple first off. And that'll really help your confidence. Don't try to build something as complicated as King of FM for your first app. Like pick <laughs> one or two features you like and then build something cool and get it under your belt, release it in the app store. Uh, no one will probably download it. That's okay. <laughs> but you know, at least you'll get the confidence to build your next thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just getting through the process of submitting the app and understanding what that takes and and so on and so forth. That's uh, definitely key. What would you, what kind of app, audio app would you recommend as a starter app? So King of FM is probably not it. Um, but if someone was going to build, what would you challenge someone to build uh, if they were getting started and they were going to do, they wanted to do something with audio? What, where, would the, where would you start them? Okay, so I think a really fun way to start would be go to uh, a person's YouTube named Moby Pixel, M-O-B-Y-P-I-X-E-L, like Moby Dick. And he does these things where he builds audio apps with 100 lines of code using audio kit. So you could build like a little drum machine, you could build a little synthesizer, you can build a little sampler all within a hundred lines of code. And it's like, that's something you can do in an afternoon, even if you've never programmed. So that's great. Yeah. Very, very cool. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up. Oh, I'm sorry. No, Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand is back with us. What are your thoughts on Sonic Pi? Uh, for use with like uh, an Arduino and things like that. Uh, Have you... I'm not familiar. I'm not as familiar with Sonic Pi. I think it's it, my guess is it's a Raspberry Pi that's set up for audio, but I don't. But I'm just guessing those. But you haven't you haven't worked with those. It doesn't sound like. Uh, Moby Pixel has some stuff on doing that and connecting to Audio Kit and and um, the pot, ra, Raspberry Pi at least and right, some right. boards. So absolutely, I, I say like whatever works for you. Like even though like we create Audio Kit. I am definitely not offended if you want to use something else. Like whatever you can use to make music and inspires you, give it a shot. I don't get paid either way, so. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas says, how do you rate keyboards? Best starter, high-end keyboard, the most popular? Oh, gosh. Um, I There's so much... Uh, synthesizer content on youtube i would i would check out like the sounds that resonate with you uh because you know so you don't have to deal with the, the marketing nonsense so if you like like google sense and then the, like the preset sounds or famous sounds you can go down a rabbit hole for hours i am guilty of watching synth videos all night long so i'm that nerd type so it's <laughs> very good now i have a question for you with the you were talking about the x key air is that the 25 or the 37 key one that you're showing there uh this is a, a 25 key so two octaves uh i have a short one so i can fit it in my backpack and just take it with me wherever i go and, and make music and show off apps uh yeah. but yeah very good very good fantastic we're really excited about it now do you have any other audio kit stuff that you'd like to uh show us any other apps that that stick out for you Oh, yeah. So this is actually probably like the most popular synthesizer in the App Store the last six months. So we're really proud of this. I can show it to you. Um, you all remember VCRs, right? Yeah. Obviously. Oh, yeah. So uh, 
Gen Z, they love that aesthetic. And that's probably why this is like the most popular synth in the app store. We we took a bunch of old keyboards from the 80s, recorded them to a VCR, then resampled them off the VHS tape what? and put it in there. So you get the real like authentic lo-fi sound versus, you know, just like an effect. So I'll show you that. Okay, I have to hear this. <laughs> okay, let me share. It's called VHS Synth. Really creative name here. It is what it says on the tin. <laughs> See, that's it's all yeah, exactly. Great yeah, graphics. super lo-fi looking. And you can. It's like instant nostalgia. And we even have uh, some tape effects. And you can like do a rewinding of of the sounds, and it's just it's just really fun, like all kinds of effects of the actual VH VCRs. And it's just That's really funny. simple and easy to use. So if you have a project where you need some, it's really good for horror movies too, <laughs> <laughs> or cheesy cheesy horror, like horror slash comedy. Yeah, it seems like it fits fits right in there. Uh, but yeah, it's like we we thought it would be popular just because you know yeah. lo-fi is so in. But and what do people use them so for? Are they just popular. they're just enjoying it, or they're using it for their TikToks, or they're using them for their YouTube's. Like, what where are people using that those audio, those sounds? Like all kinds of things from like a lot of like people doing scoring to like pro right. musicians because it's we're to the point now where there's so much emulations you can get like a VST for anything. Uh, you know, in Pro Tools to recreate any kind of synth, but I think a lot of it is missing some sort of like characteristic, some sort right. of mojo, like that digital audio converter, those old, that sound, that noise. And right. people are just so hungry for some sort of texture of something yeah. that doesn't sound sterile. So, absolutely. Next question. Robin Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia is up next. How does playing on a synth like the DX7 compare to using a generic MIDI keyboard connected to a computer with the same sampled and or generated sounds? Well, if it's if you're using the same sounds, it would be exactly the same. Uh, so for this one, we, it actually runs on a Mac Silicon. And we're really close to getting it to run on Logic uh, uh on the desktop as well there's a there's a few more things we have to do but we want it to be available for everything but uh yeah it's just the same thing it's you're going to get the real da converters you're going to get that little extra something and, and if it resonates with you cool if not it doesn't matter it's free either way if you like it use yeah. it if not <laughs> you know. download it yeah uh, uh next question Douglas Carmichael, what development environment do you prefer? Do you use stock X code or do you add an external text editor like BB Edit or Visual Studio Code? Oh, I would say like most uh, iOS developers, we're purely X code. Um, and you're all Swift? Uh, I Swift and like some C. So mm. we have Swift layers and audio kit for our C below. So right. for someone coming in and using our library, you don't have to know the C++. You can just know the Swift. 
Right. Now, how did you get into programming? It sounds like you're in both audio and programming. Uh, which came first, I guess, is the question. Oh, you know, I've always loved music, but uh, I went to Purdue, where I'm now teaching, uh, and yeah. studied computer science. Uh, so it's it's great to come back and be like, hey, I did the thing I was supposed to. Uh, <laughs> AudioKit has actually released more number one apps in the App Store for music than any other company in the history of the App Store. I think we have 12 right. number one apps That's so awesome. far. So That's it's like, we won. We won iOS music. <laughs> <laughs> That's Done. <great>. It's over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and the, I'm, I'm, what, now, what is next on your? Uh, do you, do you have another target now? Are you working on something new? Uh yeah. So we're working on that D50, uh, as right. I mentioned. Uh, so it's it's kind of that's a cool segue. And uh, oh, I've got this cool like bass uh, app that's kind of influenced by this. Yeah, it is a real synthesizer though. <laughs> that well, that will make some of the people watching happy. Uh, and you know, um, just trying to do like more charity things and, and cool things like that. So right. just stay tuned, more education stuff. Absolutely. Next question. Peter Moore brings up an interesting in Auckland, New Zealand. I know it's early days, but will or could the new Apple VR product be used in the audio realm? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, so I'm in this discord with like a lot of audio developers from like pretty much every company in the world. Uh, and someone had the idea, uh, I don't think they'll get mad at me for sharing this, that you could just like walk into a room and see like any kind of keyboard sitting there and it will instantly become any keyboard you wanted it to. So like maybe it becomes like an old D50 or a DX7. And so you're playing something in real life, any kind of controller, and you don't have to worry about cables. You don't have to worry about Bluetooth. You don't have to worry about MIDI. Like any kind of surface, like even a real piano could become any kind of other piano. So that's just like one example, but you know, the possibilities are endless. Have you played much with uh, some of these synthesizers and being able to run them in in surround? Um, so either, you know, in, into either 5.1 or, or more? Uh, I haven't, but I just know that like, Atmos is like every city in the world is like trying to convert to Atmos. It's just like a way to stay, uh, you know, yeah. relevant and and income. So, yeah, I mean, we we've been doing a lot of uh, surround work, and, and I've done surround work for the last couple of years. And you always wonder when 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 you see stereo, you immediately to to me the difference between stereo and surround is about ten times more than stereo and mono you know and so you know and 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 as we start to work we start thinking about those channels because i have to work and i work almost all my work is in five one at least right. and you know so we stop thinking about the you know the phantom center but we actually are using a center channel and we're using the surrounds and we're thinking about what we're putting in all of those things and and then when you go back to stereo you're like oh we have two channels <laughs> so what am i what am i gonna do with that uh anyway uh, but you're so but it seems like more of these synths with more of the channels it'd be really fun to be able to direct them a little bit more which we don't oftentimes is hard with the synths uh yeah absolutely i, I don't envy you that's just like a whole other layer of complex complexity I'm, it's, i just it's, it's, I, it's actually freeing you know yeah, like the, oh. the thing is is like when, when when i get you know at first it was very overwhelming but over time it gets to the point where i now have extra things to play with you know like i i can put things in a in a place that that you know were just muddy before um you know in, in stereo just kind of blended into two sides but now i can put something over here or over here like one of the we're looking at you know um putting for instance interpretation in one one ear like someone just talking to you that way you can listen to this and do this so you think about oh i can put the voice here but then i can put the music here and i can have both of them going at the same time and i'm not trying to figure out how they mix they just own their own channels and so i think that for me it's a lot easier over time 
um, to make that actually work. And it becomes more important with stuff like VR. Yeah. And you're not fighting frequencies. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, It's really cool. Yeah. Um, Good. Carl. So one thing that Matthew showed off in, I'm guessing it's in nearly all of your products would be the sequencer. So that's one way you can actually do surround is, is normally people who create tracks aren't going to create all the tracks simultaneously with one person. They're going to create a sequence of one, like a baseline, then a sequence of a lead, then a sequence of a chord generator. So you could actually do that with Matthew's iPad synth where you could actually just right. make a sequence of, let's say, a pad, record that out, and then you make a sequence of a baseline, record that out, and then yeah. you, you have all these separate stems essentially of these instruments coming out of the same one, and then you mix them into round. And that's what we Rather do now. Than, it's, yeah. We we just feel like we you know there's at some point there's somewhere in the future where all of that stuff interacts with each other, and I'm not building it into layers, but they're all interacting. Well, the Integra Seven does 5.1 output, so the Integra Seven is the only synth in the world that has 5.1 output live, so it does right. it live. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael again. Korg's uh, Op6 is famous for allowing user-created FM algorithms or interconnections between operators. Do you have plans to implement a user-controllable FM synth engine? I don't, but you can see there's an Op6 right there. <laughs> so, so it's not uh, far. No, I... I, I God, I'm gonna get some hate for this, but I just I don't I don't think I've ever used it. It just doesn't sound I, I think I think uh FM peaked with the SY ninety-nine and uh I I won't get into it. I'm kind of a, a snob with the tone, but uh we're I think moving forward we're gonna focus more on analog than FM. Mm-hmm. Uh so good question. Can you explain though. the difference for for our listeners what what the difference is between FM and analog? Oh wow. Okay. So FM is usually the best way I could explain it is it's a series of sine waves that modulate other sine waves and trying to program it and create sounds from scratch is, it's, it's can be very daunting unless you have like a physics degree <laughs> or an expert in music tech, whereas analog, it's a lot, most of the sense you hear are analog where you're basically taking filters and your knobs to sculpt sounds. And they start with sine waves and square waves and saws, uh, but to answer your question again, the, the OP6 does have a VST available for like, it's only like a hundred bucks and you don't even need the hardware. And it's exactly the same as the hardware. And I, I kind of feel like if something's one-to-one where it's exactly the same as the hardware, then it's not a good synth because like if the hardware doesn't have some sort of magic, then like it's not a real piece of gear, but I, I'm super biased. <laughs> That's so. all good. Uh, yeah, good, Carl. So that's one thing that Matthew said that he he chose to sample the DX7 rather than emulate it like you know, like all the other ones do. The reason why is because only like Brian Eno, he's the only person on the planet that can actually program a DX7. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so all those all those sounds you heard that weren't presets were Brian Eno. So that's it, and that's you know Brian Eno of course is a producer for you too and all that as well. But essentially. Um, DX7s are very hard. They're very mathematical, a lot of ratios and stuff like that. But they stumbled across the electronic piano. And went, That'll do. Let's, let's release an instrument. And But it was the most expensive instrument created in the world. I think it still is the most expensive single instrument ever created by Yamaha. Wow. And they spent more money on that than any, any other instrument ever in the world. So it was very hard to actually create. People don't really program much these days. Some people like to play around with it and get like bell sounds. You know, if you want bell sounds and that kind of sound effects, but as far as musical instruments, the presets that are in there are pretty much the best you're going to get. Um, you can tweak the instruments, of course. So you can take a preset and tweak it. Um, 
but essentially they're pretty good. Next question. Peter Moore is back from Auckland, New Zealand, and here's his question. Do you have a portable C or C++ classes for Swift, I haven't Swift yet, that you use for in multiple projects? Write once, include in all projects. And if so, what's the most included classes when you and if you start a new project? So, yeah, I mean, everything is, is portable. And by portable, do you mean like, like reusable classes because everything in AudioKit, you know, is reusable. But when I hear the word portable, I also think of platform independent. And we do have some stuff like that for like sample sample players and things like that. But yeah, uh, things I use in every project would be like like an of like an envelope. Like this would be your attack, decay, sustain, release. And I think that's really universally something yeah. you want in most apps. So, Absolutely. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael is in with this one. What do you think of Apple releasing Logic for the iPad under a subscription model? Do you think that it foretells a subscription-based future for Logic on the Mac? Ooh, yeah. Well, I, I, guess I, I think they get a lot of, got a, I think they got so much hate uh, from the community for the iPad. I can't imagine what it would be like on the desktop. <laughs> and and what, did, what do you think of logic on the, I mean, outside of the subscription model, what do you think of this, of the desktop mo um, ver, or the iPad version of logic? I, I kind of like it better than the desktop version. It's, it's cause it's Why? got some, uh, cause it's got kind of like that Ableton way of like building out the channels where it's like horizontal versus like the vertical type thing. So they, they did put some effort into making it a little more iOS friendly. So very interesting. Next question. Peter Moore back from Auckland, New Zealand. Okay. With regards to my previous Apple VR AR question. So given there's air guitar comp competitions, could you see someone writing a program for this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, period. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Battle of the Air Guitarist coming next yeah. week. <laughs> there we go. Uh, next question. Uh, Douglas Carmichael's up next. Many hardware synth manufacturers, Roland, for example, are introducing their own software emulations. Have you received any feedback from the manufacturers on your products? Uh, well, typically the things we do are unauthorized. That being said, <laughs> uh, the head sound designer for Roland Cloud you know, which makes all their emulations. Uh, he actually contributed to some sounds to some of our previous apps. So we do work closely with a lot of uh, different hardware and software people. Like, for example, one of the engineers at another hardware synth company contributed a lot of code to, to the Sega synth. So we, because we're an open source project, a lot of companies do like even like contribute like things, even though we're technically a competitor uh, we're not really, so. Right. You good, Carl? Have you uh, reached out to um, to Eric Persing about the uh, samples? <laughs> so those some of the samples, yeah. So, well, because he he of course created most of those samples in the D fifty. You know, yeah. He threw a nail file in the in the bathroom, and that became the the twing sound. And the so he, but because um, he has in in his later life kind of just allowed people to use those hundred samples. So that's that's something. Like if you're making a D50, that may come out next year, and it's open source. You know, Eric Persing may be the person you want to speak to. Oh yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of his work, and some of those samples are in Omnisphere now. Uh, so that's why we're not sampling anything from the D50. 
Or I'm kind of inspired by his process and be like, what did Eric do? Like, how did he make it? So it's like if you like study an old producer, like how did they make their records in the 70s and doing it that way versus trying to use plugins to try to emulate that 70s sound. We're going way back and using the exact same technology they had in the 80s to create the sounds without sampling any of his work. And it's really hard when you get into analog. Analog is so complex, you know, that, you know, I uh, there was a... Uh, uh, a studio, I'll leave it unnamed for now, <laughs> that uh, they decided to upgrade it. They were like, this studio has been around for 50 years. We're going to, we're going to re re upgrade it. And, uh, and they tore everything apart and they made it modern. And then no one wanted to record there anymore. It didn't have the same, it had lost the mojo um, that that studio had had. It was a very popular studio. And their theory <laughs> was that a lot of it had, to, a lot of the sound had to do with people smoking in the, th in the, in the uh, studio and all that smoke had kind of become part of the walls and had a very specific sound um, of just, you know, just lots and lots of session artists sitting there, you know, just going through a pack a day, um, had a certain feel and sound to it. And, and evidently I'm told smell, I've never been in the studio, that <laughs> um, uh, it, you know, just smelled like old cigarettes all the time. Um, and, uh, but it, but it, uh, it definitely, when they rebuilt it and made it, you know, perfect, it then didn't have that thing left you know and i think that's what makes analog so interesting um you know yeah uh, next question look for sonics with a nicotine coating coming yeah, exactly. soon <laughs> robin Cutshaw, atlanta georgia what are your favorite things to play while demoing and could you play some examples oh gosh uh, i would i would say to check out my youtube channel because that's a way for me to sneak my music in so if you look at the synth like audio kit synth one you could hear like all the music i made with synth one so mm -hmm. The problem with actually making instruments and probably Alex, you have probably the same thing as like, you know, an engineer, like you don't get the chance to actually like create because like it's your day job. So you're like right. so worn out. For, yeah, you're just from, like, okay, it's done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can't. I don't want to make music uh, yeah. anyways. But yeah, if you, if you want to check out my YouTube channel, I got some stuff, but whatever. Next question. Peter Moore, Auckland, New Zealand. You've been doing audio kit for a while now. Lessons learned. Any rewrites in its future? Oh, we're constantly rewriting audio kit. Uh, we're, we're on audio kit five and audio kit six should hopefully come out by the end of the year. And it's just one of those things where you, if you're in the Apple ecosystem, you have to rewrite things because every year something changes. So code you had two years ago will no longer work. So it's, it's a constant struggle to leapfrog. Is there anything that now that you've been doing, how many years have, have, have you been doing audio kit? Gosh, like almost a decade now. Yeah. Are we that old? <laughs> when, yeah, exactly. I, I know when I started saying I did that seven years ago, I'm like, really? Did I do that seven years ago? Uh, is there anything when you look back on AudioKit that you would have started differently, knowing what you know a decade into it? Ooh. Uh, well, there's a lot of things I'm glad we did that I had some pushback on. Like, you know, our most popular app is AudioKit Synth One, and a lot of people on the team wanted to charge for it, and I'm, I'm really glad we we made that open source. And I, I think I would uh, just like make everything open source and, and maybe make some more things free instead of just, even when it's $2.99, there's a lot of kids that don't have credit cards and it just cuts them off from the accessibility. So, Absolutely. Matthew, so thank you so much for your time. It's just thank really, you. really, this is a blast. 
Yeah, really, really love having you come on, and, and we're really excited about what AudioKit uh, does and and all the all the apps, and and it's something that I think that is so powerful on these platforms, especially the iPad, of being able to just have this, you know, have many of these sitting on one device that you can just start creating, all, you know, all of your music with, and we just really appreciate the work that you've done for the community. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And um, and thank you to the uh, to the to the producers for all the great questions, keeping us going for the last couple hours. Uh, you know, so we, we can't do this without you. We don't have a, we don't have a plan without the questions. <laughs> so 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 thank you so much for that. Uh, thank you to the panelists uh, for the uh, um, for all the for all the answers in the conversation. We can't also can't do it without you, and we also can't do it without the uh, small village that lights up every day um, that puts this show together. Um, there are people who are planning these sessions, that are running this session, um, that are developing more tech for the sessions. Uh, so we just really appreciate everybody's contribution there. Um, we traveled 171,000 miles today to answering those questions, uh, 276,000 kilometers. That's 1.361 billion bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. I lost like 45 minutes this morning playing with the app. I was like, I better, I better play with the app before Matthew gets on. And then I just, I looked up and I was like, oh no, <laughs> the show's about to start. <laughs> it's so great. It's so good. I really appreciate hearing that. I hope some yeah. of the sounds resonated with you. So. Oh yeah. Just, I just, it was very, uh, I, I loved opening, like opening up to the Canyon setting or whatever, just this really big open-ended you know, just floating out there and and um, and playing with it. I was trying to get the sequencer working. That's what I was asking about earlier. I'm going to figure that out a little bit, but but it was uh, it's really good. Yeah, really great app. All right, thanks. All right, see you.